Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Well, good morning. If you'll open your Bible to the book of Haggai, continuing our series, little books, big messages. We've covered Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum, Zephaniah, And now we're going to look at Haggai. And this morning, just chapter 1. If you're using the little blue Bibles provided in the back, it's on page 461 for you. So here the prophet Haggai writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, The heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, and on the grain, and the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. And then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. 
I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. Let me invite you to pray with me. Lord, make us desperate. So much of what masquerades as true religion, as Christianity, is lifeless. It's just the creation of people. We want more than that. We long for more than that. We don't want to fall into that trap. We need you to stir our hearts. So please come. Grant your Holy Spirit to influence every heart that's gathered. Make a people for yourself who love more than anything to be about your glory and to build up your house. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was Paul, the Apostle Paul, who said that to him, to live was Christ. And as he explains it then, he lived with this unrelenting pair of passions. What was far better and what was most needful. He longed to be with Jesus. That was the far better thing. But until he was with Jesus, he understood his living in light of the church's need. The church's need. That was most needful. So to Paul, the Christ-centered life. For to me, to live is Christ. The Christ-centered life was a church-building life. To be about Jesus was to be about the people of Jesus. And so Paul did what? He he planted churches. He established churches. He revitalized churches. Healthy churches. Sickly churches. Gifted churches that were immature churches. He wrote the pastorals. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and so on. Four churches. His Christian life was defined by a self-sacrificial care for Christ's churches. You say, well, he, he was an apostle after all. And yet wherever he was, his goal was not to showcase a zeal for the church that was isolated to him or was unique to him. It was rather to exhort all the members of that church or those churches It was to exhort them into a a similar zeal so that they, that church, began to build itself up in truth and in love. Haggai would have loved Paul. This is one of those building books of the Bible. 
If you have a building project as a church, you probably don't go to Haggai. You go to Nehemiah, right? You go to Nehemiah. If that's not enough, you move on to Zechariah, bigger prophet, right? And if you still need a little more, you might go to Haggai just to top it off. Well, we don't have a building project, at least not like that. At least not like that. What we do have, however, is the most significant building project in the world, and that's the building of a people of whom it can be said, God is in this place. And Haggai, though his message is about a stone and mortar building, moves us a step closer in that direction. And as he does, the message becomes deeply incisive for each one of us, I think. It cuts into stone and mortar hearts, and it galvanizes a people to seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God, to realign their hearts with his own heart and to prove it by adding action to an ideal. Dear ones, it is odd that this would be controversial even amongst Christians today. But if we live maximally impactful lives for Jesus, we will give our lives to the particular edification or upbuilding of His church. God cares about the condition of His house. And as that is at the center of His purpose for the world, Haggai says, you and I, we should care about it too. So let's come to verses 1-11. through 11. And see first how he goes about realigning hearts with the building of God's house. Realigning hearts. So if you don't mind mixing metaphors, I visited the eye doctor this week and I had my pupils dilated. And as they were dilated, what had been clear became impossibly blurry. And the lovely light of the sun outside was a beautiful day. It became intolerably bright. But of course, they're doing it to check my vision, right? They're dilating my people so that they can see things that I can't see myself. Any macular degeneration, any cataracts, any corneal scratches, how's that optic nerve doing, and things like this. And if they detect a problem, the goal is to do what they can to correct that problem. They care about the health of my vision. They want to see me seeing straight. But now Satan, he wants to dilate the pupils of our hearts and leave our sight as is. The goal, his goal, is a darkened blurriness that allows the degeneration of our spiritual sight to go on unchecked and uncorrected. Our enemy does not want us to see straight. The prince of demons wants us to fall off the narrow path, never to find it again. Simply put, the devil likes to toy around with our priorities. He doesn't want us to have an unimpeded vision of the glory of God. You get an unimpeded vision of the glory of God, that's going to set your life straight and true to the heart of God. And single-eyed churches, those that are 
focused on their biblical calling in Christ, they become this mighty edifice for God. Paul says, a pillar and buttress of truth in this world, and the deceiver of souls does not like that one bit. Thankfully, that's just too bad for him because God loves it that we become that kind of building. Case in point for all that, the survivors of the exile here, led in part by Zerubbabel and Joshua, they return to Jerusalem and they begin to rebuild the temple around about 536 B.C. Only soon as they begin to do this rebuilding project, they are opposed. You go see this in Ezra. They're opposed and they're made to stop. We're told that their neighbors began to discourage them. They began to say things against them and to depress their spirits throwing around their political clout and their political weight and making them afraid to build. So the great adversary right there has made his initial visit. You're not going to build this house. And several things follow from that. Though so many prophets make plain that their charge is from God, the people here, they cower before men. God's Word is not as loud as society's threats. The leaders bend, and when the leaders bend, the people break. What's the point after all? We're just a little band of beaten people. We're this insignificant speck on the grand stage of Darius' world. You know what they say. If you can't beat them, join them. So, Let's just get our lives in order first. Let's make some headway in the world. And then, after we're settled there, whenever that is, then we'll circle back to the house of God. And from the time that they ceased building to the time that Haggai starts prophesying 16 years go by. How easy it is to lose sight of what matters most. And then go on to allow that visual impairment to persist and consume your life unchecked until the Lord of all and the things that are all to Him become an afterthought you and me. We should thank God that He sends Haggai's to realign our hearts with His heart. Right? And here He does that first by shedding light on their spiritual apathy you see in verse 2. Haggai addresses Zerubbabel and Joshua, and though it's been 16 years again, he says, these people say, the time has not yet come. The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The question is, will there ever be a time? Friends, for those whose hearts are wrapped up in this world It'll never be exactly the right time to be zealous for the glory of God. It'll never feel timely to recenter on the Lord. 
We do need to get this part of things here. In the Bible, the house of God is, as the name suggests, the place God indwells to live among His people in the cause of divine truth and saving grace. And therefore, it's more than a building that they're putting off. It's more than just a physical structure, this temple that they're apathetic about. They are apathetic about life with God at the center. They're apathetic about life with God at the heart. They're apathetic about life with a holy Savior in it in any practically powerful way at all. They're content to put it off because they could not care less about being His uniquely holy and beloved people. They're just sort of meh with God. They're feigning happiness in worldliness because that's all you really can do in worldliness is feign or fake happiness. They aren't seeing straight. And so he goes on to adjust their lenses. Now perhaps you and I can, we can relate a little bit to their struggle with God addressing the what and why of it in much of verses 6 to 11. We know, we understand, it takes time, energy, money, resources to build a temple for God. And they never seem to have enough of that. In devoting themselves to their own kingdoms, you see this in the verses, in devoting themselves to their own kingdoms, they had nothing left for God's. In devoting themselves to the normal cares of life, such cares only multiplied. Do you hear that? When we give ourselves to keeping up with the Joneses instead of to following the Lord Jesus Christ, we are bound to be disappointed with life. Life minus God at the center is really, really frustrating because you're made for the glory of God. That's not living. You don't have Him at the center, it's not living. It's just existing. Disappointed. Dissatisfied. The pursuit of godless satisfaction is really just another name for perpetual irritation. And for this people who had clear covenantal promises, for better or worse, in view, their sight is proven all the more degenerate by what we see in the passage. As they work their fingers to the bone, only to have less than they sowed, never enough at table, and clothes in bags that could hold neither warmth nor wage, you would think they'd go, man, we need to go read the back half of Deuteronomy and understand why that is. Get a clue. But they don't do it. Whether or not you end up more or less materially prosperous, life is best with God at the center. If the soul is satisfied, 
If the heart knows the smile of God, if the life is couched in the love of God, we will find enough to serve the house of the Lord. And that is so much of His hard but loving work in our lives. You see this in verse 9 and so on. God will do whatever He thinks necessary to correct our priorities, to correct our hearts and realign them with His. He will set your teeth on edge with bitter providences, bitter providences, just to get your attention. He will hide His smile. He'll give dark clouds to cover His light. He will withdraw, not His presence. We want to be clear about that. But He will withdraw the sense of it, the sweetness of it, the influence of it. He will let us feel our losses, get a despairing notion of our godless selves, ourselves without Him. And He'll do it all to get us seeking Him supremely again with all our hearts. That is love. God will wreck us to repair us. He will give us droughts on this earth in order to deluge us with the rainfall of heaven. He'll do what He must to clear up our sight, set us straight, and busy us about His pleasures again. And here's the thing to draw us back to the text. God calls them on what must have been mostly excuses in this vein. He wants them to operate. You see in the passage, he, he wants them to operate by a biblical worldview to understand their covenant Lord is the sovereign of all of their situations. He is the sovereign of all their circumstances. But at the same time, He wants them to know He knows the truth. Which comes into view in verses 4 and 9. Whatever they had, they had enough to spare on their own houses. They had enough to panel their houses after the style of Solomon's temple. They were well-to-do enough to busy themselves with this addition and that accommodation. They had time, they made time for all of that kind of thing, all the while passing daily by the foundation site where God's house lies in ruins. Is there ever a time for that to be the case? Dear ones, the issue wasn't ability. Again, it was apathy. Facts. They just didn't care enough about God or His pleasure and purpose to give their lives to any of it. That's why God twice commands them, consider your 
ways. Take it to heart. Your best life now, whatever that is, that originates from you, it stinks. God makes that kind of living and exercise in futility on purpose. Because He wants you to go up, get some wood, build the house, His house, so that He might take pleasure in it and He be glorified in the world. That's an exercise not in futility, but in eternity. I'm so glad God keeps an eternal perspective for all the times that I lose it. I'm so glad He realigns our hearts with the building of His house. But now, as in the passage, there is, I want you to see there, advancing, an advancement to action in the building of God's house. Haggai, praise God, does not preach in vain. I love that. That's the last bit of the passage. Here's the most important thing. His hearers are not finally hearers only. They become doers of the Word. And there are a couple of items just to note there. I want you to see that their move from heart alignment into faithful action begins with the leaders and then washes down into the people at large. Haggai is stubborn on this particular pattern. Who does he address first? Over and over and over again. Who said to obey first? In what order are they? In whom does the Lord stir first? It's always this. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and then all the people. You see that? Always. Zerubbabel, Joshua, leaders, and then the people. And so, we've said this here before. The text now makes it worth repeating that the sealing of a people's faithfulness, their impact for Christ in the world, the sealing rises and falls with that of her leaders. Not always, but I think typically, if the ministers are faithful and obedient and brave and they're stirred up by God, the people will follow suit. And the same can be said if the ministers are apathetic and lukewarm. One thing I can say, it will only serve your own souls well to pray for those who have been set aside to serve as ministers of the gospel in this church. To pray that the leaders of this church would live with spirits that are stirred by God for the glory of His house is to pray for your own awakening. That is to pray for your own straightening. It's to pray for your own strengthening. It's to pray for your own usefulness in the greatest task in the universe. Man, we love you. We really do. We love you and we long to lead you well along all the lines 
of Scripture. Can I just implore you, you're a member of this church, just pray. Pray that the Lord would keep His fire blazing in us. Make it more and more and greater and greater and brighter and brighter. And please, God, don't let us get apathetic. That's the other thing to note here. How there's this back and forth between what the people do and what God does. We might ask, why do the people do what they do? You see verse 12. Verse 12, they hear the word and they obey the word all the things that they had grown to fear, be it their size as a people, they were little, they were small, be it the, the pressures of their enemies, the loss of what life they'd made for themselves, the break with a quarter life of alliances and customs and comforts and whatever, they began not to fear so much as they began to fear the Lord. His throne regained their wills. They were stirred. Their spirits were moved by the Spirit of God. So that verse 14, they put everything else to the side. They put everything else to the margins. They relativized it all. And they took up the work of rebuilding God's house again. It was so unfashionable it was such a dangerous thing to do, but they did it. I repeat, they did it. But now why? We've seen. Only a few weeks prior, they'd been mired in a self-seeking spiritual apathy for 16 years. Fine to see the house in ruins and pass it by with no more than excuses for why they were doing that. Beloved, never underestimate what God can do in you with a month of preaching. There's three weeks in the text. He sends Haggai. Word of the Lord, message of the Lord. He begins to preach and everything changes. Never underestimate what God can do in you with a month of preaching that He Himself delights to attend and vitalize and utilize in the power of the Holy Spirit. The people are stirred to the work because when they were still all up in their arms from day to day about what tile to put down in their bathrooms... God still took the initiative to speak to them, to promise them His presence, and to stir them up about His house from the leaders to the people. So, who built the house? Certainly the people did. And ultimately, God did. In the highest sense, the Lord could say, I will build my house and the gates of Darius shall not prevail against it. But at any rate, the picture is a compatible one. Hearts realigned with the building of God's house are advanced to action in the doing of it as will be the case where the Lord is manifest 
by the Spirit, through the preaching of His Word. I really want to go on a diatribe there. I'll try to avoid it. And just say how important it is then that we be a church that majors, not minors, but majors, like really majors, richly, deeply majors, on the prayerful ministry of all the Word of God. That'll do. You see the ingredients? The Word. The Spirit. They start going and doing. Diatribe. Sorry. Now, with all of that, we need to go on applying Haggai chapter 1 to the building of God's house today. It might be asked, what's the big deal? It's just a building. Why is it so critical? I don't get it. Just give a few minutes here. Take a ride with me on an elevator of sorts. We start at the top. Where? In the Garden of Eden, God dwelled with man. It's a house, a sanctuary. But before that grace could cover the whole world of man, the cable was snapped. The elevator fell. And sinners were put out of the presence of God. Only, thank God, not absolutely forever. And to show this, God began to commission heavenly building projects on earth. But not just any kind of building project. We might call them houses. In which God, in spite of our sins, determined to live to keep His people from dying. If we would. And so the elevator, if you will, begins from rock bottom to rise. There's this mobile tabernacle or tent in the wilderness. Remember that? And then after that, there's this first temple in Jerusalem. And before that one gets built, there's this crucial revelation surrounding its construction. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It becomes foundational to biblical faith. I think even for Haggai here. And it's that while David did well to have it in his heart to build a house for God, God one-ups David. Do you remember this? He one-ups David and promises by a future son of his to build him, David, this royal house that will never fail and never fall again. It'll be an everlasting house. And in this exchange, God's house takes on more than brick and mortar. It becomes analogous to a household gathered from all the world, over which a son of David will preside forever. Only then, the elevator stalls as that temple is destroyed because of the sins of the people, and they are exiled. And so we arrive at Haggai. And as we've seen, Haggai is in earnest to have this second post-exilic temple built. Why? Because, it's as we said, 
and we'll consider in more detail a week from now, but he rightly, under direct revelation, understands and preaches of something that's on the horizon that apparently is end game. It's the telos, or the goal, of God's redemptive purpose in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why, if you're still tracking, if you go to Malachi, and that's who we're coming to after Haggai, Malachi signs off the whole Old Testament with these words of God. I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple. And then you get silence. For five centuries. (laughs) Until, after John the Baptist, one comes who was eternally before John, namely, go ahead, participate, there you go, Jesus. And in Jesus, what we have then is the next level version of God's house. He, as the New Testament repeatedly emphasizes, was God incarnate, God in the flesh, God with us, God in a man. In Him, Paul says in Colossians, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily. And Jesus knew this. That's why in John chapter 2, He said, remember this, destroy this Temple, alluding to his body. And in three days, I will raise it up again. And just there, church, we rise again. We level up again. Because you see, he begins to reveal the mystery long foretold in the death and resurrection of his body paired with his ascension another body belonging to him, call it a temple, would begin to be built. As sinners, believing the gospel, we're united to him and to one another. In this last age, prior to the everlasting one, where God will dwell with His people again in the heaven of a new creation, I want you to hear, God has a house. And dear ones, that house is you. It's not this brick and mortar sanctuary any more than it was this post-exilic temple that Jesus said would lie in ruins within His disciples' lifetime. It's the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's us. It's this local church as part of the church. So, where, let me ask you then, might a person meet with God today if not uniquely among us as a church we are now the flesh and blood 
display of the glory of the gospel of God. There is no higher calling in the universe between now and forever than being a church. Full stop. Well, I'd add one thing. That's faithful to all the Word of God. I've heard there's an oil lube being built just across the street. I hope that's not true. If so, it'd be like the third or fourth one in like a couple miles on this strip right here. If it's an oil lube, that is a totally unnecessary edifice. A thing that can never be said about the church of the living God. We're to go about building this thing everywhere we go. With these words of Jesus, like a mighty wind at our backs, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We get off the elevator just there and ask with all our hearts, What then can we do? Great question. I think the text would have us consider our ways with clear eyes. I'm arguing, just in case you've missed it, I'm arguing that the Christ-centered life will be supremely a church-building one. So are we broken over her ruins? Or are we apathetic about it? What's going to mark us in these short lives that we live? Tearing it down or building it up? In one discipline or another, we have all kinds of specialists in this room, I imagine. To be a Christian is to specialize, above all, in the building of a people who make God manifest, who make Christ tangible, who make the gospel visible, put it on display, who make heaven palpable. In that frame, then, are you one convincing yourself it's you know it's it's just not a good time to do much with God's house or are you one going up to the hills to get what's needed for building a house that pleases God and brings him glory you probably heard it said before the church is a go and tell people it's no longer a come and see people we don't do that anymore Go and tell. Don't come and see. But I don't understand for the life of me why we have to split the difference. We are a show and tell people, if you will. So we need to believe it here. We are each called, 
Each one of us called to take on a worldview where serving the health of God's house is more than all the world alone can give. We're each one of us called to unbusy our lives in order to create margin for one another. You and I, we're each one of us called, perhaps, to trade out a night of play for a night of pure prayer. God, build your house. We're each one of us called by God to hold each other accountable, not just for hearing the word, but then for doing what we have heard. Accountable for actually using the gifts, the talents, the abilities, the skills that God has given to us, not putting them in our back pocket. We're accountable for meeting the needs that we uncover in this body. We're accountable for staying stirred by standing prayerfully upon the Word of God. Christ is the foundation that has been laid. But what can you do? What can we do upon it that edifies, beautifies, and advances His structure in this world? Man, I take it that heaven is a place that people, if they really knew it, would die. So why not also what's purposed to be a foretaste of heaven? Well, are we building well? That matters. <laughs> the beauty of the church matters. Materials then matter. What are we doing? What are we building with? Is it text? Is it canon? Is it prayer? Godliness. Fellowship. Hospitality. Discipleship. Is it all heart? From the heart? For all of life? Are we building with Jesus? If we are, it will be evident. So we need to consider our ways with clear eyes. Could you lean, perhaps, into a new area of service among this church? Is there a new relationship that you could pursue? Is there a more developed one that you could strengthen? Might there be some kind of repentance that you need to make in relationship to someone else? Is there reconciliation that you need to be forging? Are there opportunities to build this house, this local church, certain gatherings for prayer, discipleship, hospitality, evangelism that you might attend now with redirected purpose and passion? And against all apathy and against all worldliness, would you just pray to be stirred by the Lord? Friend, Jesus, we're told in the Bible, was a stone despised by men, but very precious in the eyes of God. In plain words, He died on the cross to be the sinner's hope. We sang it earlier. 
Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We all confess that, but if you haven't yet, won't you do that now? Won't you repent of your sin-ruined life? Your life right now, as it is, outside of Christ, it lies in shambles. I promise you. Will you repent of that and trust in Jesus to put you back together again and forevermore? You do that, your sins will be forgiven. You will be counted righteous. You will be reconciled to God. You will have everlasting peace with God. You will have sure footing in the house of God. Oh dear ones, Haggai, as we're going to see next week, has a house of even greater glory. If, as he says, the one of his own day was worth all their time, all their sacrifice, all their lives, what of this one? Is it worth our time to see straight that it grows to build itself up in truth and in love? Well, to end where we started, I'd say, with Paul, it's worth our lives. To be Christ-centered is to be church-building. Heart in heart, hand in hand, for all of life with Jesus. We pray together. Lord, again, we look to you. There will be no obedience, no proper fear, no heart stirring without you working in our hearts. Save the lost, stir the found for your glory and build a church here and all around us. Meet with local churches in this area. Build them up. Make us all pillars and buttresses of truth. Make us a radical display of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray with all our hearts. 